this, uh, this morning may be a first in that um, I don't have a scripture for you to turn to to begin with. That's uh, something that I normally do. I, I, I don't remember that I've ever not done this before. So let me, let me set up what I want to talk to you about this morning. Uh, several weeks ago, probably three, maybe between three and four weeks ago, there were some things that, uh, that took place that, uh, that, began, that God used to, to stir in my heart what I believed that He wanted me to teach after the series that we did on, uh, on the glory of God. Now, we finished the series on the glory of God, and then we had the special meetings with, uh, with Brother Terry that uh, concluded last uh, Sunday. But I've, uh, I've had uh, for several weeks something rolling around in my heart about teaching. And, uh, and then when Terry was here last Sunday morning, uh, well, actually, the subject that the Lord uh, kind of dealt with me about teaching was spiritual law. And uh, then when Terry said some of the things, and, and he told me afterwards, he said, I, Mike, I'm sorry. I said, I hope I didn't cause you a problem. He said, I had no intention to talk about some of the things that I did and, and to go in that direction. He said, it just, I just found myself in the middle of it and wondered how I got there. So I considered it to be the, the, the Lord uh, partly to, um, uh, to confirm to me which, way, which direction he wanted me to go for the next couple of weeks. When Terry started saying some things about, uh, about laws... When he started talking about some of the things about the laws of man and, and, uh, and so forth, uh, I don't know if anybody else did, but I felt in the room there was a real resistance. I mean, it was almost like everybody put the brakes on him for a little bit. It took him a while to get the brakes off. And um, uh, that may be one of the reasons why I went a little bit longer last Sunday morning. But, uh, but at any rate, there's, um, there's a lot of good teaching out in the body of Christ now, and there's a lot of teaching that's not good. And there's a lot of things that... Um, um, well, there's a lot of things you have to pick through to figure out what is good. You know, Brother Hagen talked about as a, as a young boy growing up on the, on the farm. He said, you know, we'd, um, we'd a lot of times have uh, uh, bales of hay that you'd break up and you'd put in the, the, the troughs that the, the cows would feed from. And he said, well, when people were baling hay, he said, you know, it's not just hay growing out in the field. Sometimes there'd be sticks in there and, and um, so forth. And he said, at the, after the, the cows had finished eating, he said, at the bottom of the trough, there'd be sticks. And so you'd have to clean that out and, and so forth, get it ready for the next time you fed them. He said, Christians ought to have as much sense as an old cow. He said, they ought to learn to eat the hay and leave the sticks. Well, spiritually, that's true. And a lot of times you've got to pick through a lot of sticks to get some hay. That's not the way that God intended for it to be. It's unfortunate that that's the way it is. So, um, anyway, I've got on my heart to, to teach to you about spiritual law for the next couple of weeks. Now, law in, in, in the modern context in today's American church, and it's not so much this way anywhere else, but in the church in America, law is a dirty word. Because people see that as something that's, that's restrictive. People see that as something that, that says, here's what you can't do, or here's what you have to do, or, or, or here's some burden that's upon you. But the word law, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the word law means the same thing. It means prescriptive use. It means regulation. Physical laws, God's a God of order. He's a holy God and He's a God of order. God created the earth in an orderly fashion. He created physical laws. One of the, the ones that we know the most about and uh, are, are, would think about first and foremost would be the law of gravity. Now, folks, the law of gravity has caused a lot of people to die. People have fallen off roofs. Kids have fallen out of trees. Sometimes it's created great tragedy. But the law of gravity wasn't intended to be harmful. 
The law of gravity is, keeps, is what keeps you and me from spinning off into space as the earth rotates at 1,000 miles an hour. The law of electricity. What a blessing electricity is. We heat our homes with it. We cool our homes with it. We cook with it. We have light in our homes in the middle of the darkness. There are so many things that electricity provides for us and so many blessings. Yet people have been killed and, and are killed oftentimes because somebody violates the laws of electricity and they're electrocuted. Folks, there is not one physical law, nor is there one spiritual law that God created for any reason other than to be a blessing to you. But because people don't understand laws, spiritual laws, because people don't understand those spiritual laws, then they take opposition to them and they fail to recognize and fail to take advantage of the blessing that they were intended for. So let's talk about a couple of spiritual laws. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Spiritual laws were intended, are intended, and were created for man to partake of God's goodness. Laws are not something we should run away from. I'm talking about spiritual laws now. Spiritual laws are not something we should run away from. Spiritual laws are something we should run to. Because only through those spiritual laws are we going to experience the goodness of God. Hebrews chapter 9. Notice in the uh, 11th and the 12th verses. It says, But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Paul wrote to the church that there is no other name under heaven whereby men should be saved. Peter said that to the Jews, to the Pharisees in Acts chapter 3. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. In other words, a spiritual law means there's only one way to get in a desired result. A spiritual law, the spiritual law of redemption, I hesitate to use the word salvation because salvation means a lot more than what the modern day church accepts. Salvation for most people means forgiveness of sins. Redemption means a whole lot more than that. The Bible says you're redeemed from a lot of things other than just having your sins forgiven. So the law of redemption, the spiritual law of redemption is the blood of Jesus. And what that means is there is no other way to redemption other than the blood of Jesus. Now if, you want to, if you're more comfortable with the word salvation, that's fine. As long as you understand that we mean those two terms interchangeably. Salvation is redemption. I'm not talking about how other people refer to it. I'm talking about how the Bible refers to it. So the blood of Jesus is the law of redemption. It's the law of righteousness. It's the law of the new birth. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can bring the righteousness of God to mankind. If you're trying to be righteous any other way, which Paul ran into a lot, that was a lot of the situation that existed in his ministry where people were still trying to apply the law of Moses. And I understand that a lot of our attitude toward law is what is, is based on the things that Paul said writing about the law of Moses. But folks, I've got to tell you, I've never been tempted to go kill a sheep to please God. Have you? I've never been tempted to try to keep the, the Jewish holy days or the feasts or the festivals so that God would like me. That's never been an issue for me. And so in some ways, you, I have a hard time relating to the law of Moses, yet when I turn around and look, I grew up in a denomination that had a lot of the laws of their own. They told me that if I didn't pray a certain amount every day, then God wasn't going to be happy with me. 
They told me that if I didn't witness, God wouldn't be happy with me. They were all about witnessing. Looking back at it, it was more spiritual mugging than it was witnessing. Because it was all based on them trying to get a quota or them trying to accomplish something on their own. But folks, some of you have heard my testimony of being saved. I spent less than two weeks of my life here on the earth spiritually dead. About two weeks before I turned seven years old, I recognized there was something on the inside of me. I know now there was the Holy Ghost. I know now it was the inward witness. I didn't know there was such a thing as the Holy Ghost back then. I didn't know anything about an inward witness. But about two weeks before I turned seven, there was something on the inside of me that says, you know about Jesus, you've heard about him in Sunday school, now you need to do something about him for yourself. I knew what that meant. That meant I was supposed to ask Jesus into my heart. But I thought, that meant I've got to walk down to the front of the Baptist church. And that's not going to happen. That just terrified me. The thought of that just terrified me. I mean, here's these, these deacons standing at the, at the edges of the aisles, you know, the front of the church, looking mean. The pastor standing up above them on the platform saying, come give your heart to Jesus. And they're just glaring at you. I don't want any part of that. And so I rejected it. And for the next 10 or 12 days, I was miserable. Because something changed on the inside of me. The light went out. Paul said about his own experience, he said, I was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. Well, being alive and being dead, he's got to be talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. He can't be talking about physical life and physical death. So what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritually. He's saying, I was alive, spiritually alive as a child. But then when the knowledge of the law came, the Baptist church called that the age of accountability. I, I don't know if there's any better term for it or not. It's the, it's the point in time... It's not a, it's, it's, it may not be the same time for everybody, but there comes a, a specific point in time for each and every person individually where they come to the knowledge of Jesus for themselves. Same thing with me. I knew I needed to do about something about Jesus for myself just before I turned seven years old, two weeks before my seventh birthday. Well, I didn't do that, and so the light went out. I died spiritually. Well, after about 10 or 12 days, I finally talked to my mom. She explained to me, you don't have to go to the front of the Baptist church. We can just pray right here. So we knelt down and by my bed in my bedroom. She got me saved. The light came back on. Well, once the light came on, then I wasn't so afraid to go down to the front of the Baptist church. We did go down there. I got baptized and so forth. But then the Baptist church told me I got to go witness. What am I going to do? Tell how God saved me from a life of sin? <laughs> just to give your testimony. Okay, for 12 days I was spiritually dead. Well, what awful sin did you commit? Uh, I don't know. What caused you to be spiritually dead? See, all, all I heard were these testimonies of people that had been on drugs. They'll spend 30 minutes talking about the life they lived in drugs and, and adultery and prostitution and all this kind of stuff. And then the last 30 seconds say, but God saved me. Well, I didn't have any testimony like that. Still don't. Thank God. I used to feel condemned because I didn't have a testimony. I think I've got the best testimony there is. But see, there's this law, there's this, this burden that's imposed upon us. You've got to do things our way. Folks, when the Bible says that you're free from the law, it means you're free from whatever any other person says that you've got to do to get right with God. And the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can bring you to Him. 
Bible says it's grace that causes you to be saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It's not of your own works. It's through simply the finished work of Jesus. But there's a law that governs that. The blood of Jesus is the law of redemption. It's the law of righteousness. It's the law of the new birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. How do you get there? Oh, Pastor Mike, I want to be a new creature. I don't want to just be saved. I want to live saved. It comes the same way, folks. The same way that you become saved is the way that you stay spiritual or become spiritual or grow spiritually mature. And that is by the finished work of Jesus. But this is spiritual law. And it's not something to run away from. It's something to run to. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about this spiritual law of redemption, but he uses a different term for it in this case. He says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, he says, For the law of sin and the law of the life of the the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I'll get it right in a minute. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free or set me free from the law of sin and death. What's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual life versus spiritual death. Now verse 1 is the good news. There's no condemnation because you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Those are all interchangeable terms. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is righteousness. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is redemption. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is being made a new creature. These are all interchangeable terms. Paul talked about it in a lot of different ways. The Holy Ghost inspired him to speak of these things in different terms. But it's all based on one law, and that is the blood of Jesus. Because that's the only way you can get there. Well, let's talk about some other spiritual laws. Turn with me over to Hebrews. uh, Well, let's look at James first. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, James is talking about when you're in the middle of a hard place. Let's start in verse 2. He gives you instruction when you're in the middle of difficulty. He said, my, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, the word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. He's not talking about when the devil is tempting you. He's saying when trouble tempts you. I don't know if you know this or not, but circumstances are temptations in life. They're temptations as to whether or not you're going to obey what the Bible says or do what the rest of the world does. Sickness is a temptation. The circumstance of sickness appearing in your your body is a temptation. The question is, how are you going to handle it? It's a fact that it comes. How are you going to handle it? You're going to handle it based on the Word? You're going to handle it based on what everybody else does? Financial lack is a temptation. That's what this is talking about. How are you going to handle it? Each situation that we encounter in life is a test that's thrown in our path to see how we're going to face or deal with or handle those circumstances. So James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, folks, please notice he didn't say they were joyful. That's why you have to count it joy. That's something you do only by an act of your own will. He says, count it joy. In other words, don't lose your joy because of the circumstance you're in. Knowing this, how are we going to count it joy? There's only one way, and that is if you know this. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The last phrase, you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, in another translation says that victory may be fully restored. 
Let patience have her perfect work that victory may be fully restored. See, circumstances of lack or, or sickness or whatever is an attempt by the devil to steal your victory. But the Bible tells you how to get the restoration, come back to the restoration of that victory. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom. Now, what wisdom is he talking about? He's saying, if you get in a hard place, you get in a difficulty in your life, and you don't know what to do, here's how to handle that. He's not talking about wisdom in a general sense, because the Bible says, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, he said, Christ is made unto you wisdom. So you already have the wisdom of God on the inside. But there are some times and some situations that you're not going to know exactly what to do. That's what James is talking about. What do we do under those circumstances? Ask for wisdom. Ask for specific wisdom in specific situations. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And God will laugh at him because he doesn't know what to do. No, of course not. God wants you to have the answer. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. He didn't say bite. He didn't say your chances are good. He didn't say cross your fingers really and close your eyes really tight when you pray and hope that something good happens. He said it will be given to you. But, and here's the condition. Here's how to make sure that it works. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. So it's not just a matter of asking. It's a matter of asking in faith. Expecting the result. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man, the man that wavers, the man that's driven with the wind and tossed. The man that goes back and forth. The man that says, yeah, I believe I received. Well, I don't know if God's going to tell me or not. The man that says, yeah, healing is mine by the word of, uh, by the word of God, according to the word of God. And on the other hand, he says, well, I don't know. I thought things were getting better. Maybe it's not working after all. That's the double-minded man that he's talking about. He said, let not that man, the double-minded man, think that he shall receive anything from God. So please notice that he's gone in verse 5 from asking specifically for faith to the principle of receiving anything from God. So what does that tell us? It tells us that faith is the law of receiving. There is a spiritual law of receiving from God, and the basis of that law is faith. Faith is the only way you can receive from God. It's the only way you get saved. The blood of Jesus is the law of redemption, but faith is the vehicle whereby that law is applied. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That one should be easy. We talk a lot about faith around here. What about another one? Well, as we said, we talk about faith. Look at Mark chapter 11. Let's go a little bit further. Jesus in his experience, faced a fig tree that looked to be fruitful but was not. So he cursed the fig tree. Next morning, they come, the disciples come by and they see. They heard Jesus curse it the day before. Now they come by and they bring it to Jesus' attention and say, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. And Jesus answered, said unto them, verse 22, Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God. That can be translated in a number of different ways. One translation says, have the faith of God. Another translation says, reckon on God's faithfulness. Another translation says, have the God kind of faith. They're all appropriate. They're all right. So he says, have faith in God. And then he says in verse 23, For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. What does that tell us? It tells us that confession is the law of faith. Now that's not something new. 
Jesus didn't just institute this. You remember back in Numbers chapter 13 where the 12 spies go into Israel or go into the Canaan land and spy out the land. They come back with the report. They bring back the fruit of the land and it's better than anything they've ever seen. And their report, everybody's report is this land is just the land that flows with milk and honey exactly like God said. But then 10 of them said, but there's a problem. The problem is there's giants in the land. Well, who do you think has been growing the fruit? That didn't change anything, but it did in their mind. There's giants in the land. They've got cities, big cities with big walls around them. They're stronger than we are. And we are as grasshoppers in their sight. The end result of that, Caleb and Joshua stand up and say, No, 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 don't rebel against God. Folks, it's rebellion when you say you can't do what God says you can do. It's rebellion when you say you're not what God says you are. The Bible calls that an evil heart of unbelief. Now, people want to talk about what's evil, meaning lying, cheating, stealing, you know, sexual immorality and things like that. But the Bible says that an evil heart is unbelief. So they said, we can't do what God said. It, the land is just what God said it would be, but we can't do it. We can't take the land. doesn't matter that God said the land was already ours. We can't do it. So they rebelled against God. The end result of that is in Numbers chapter 14. God speaks to, the, to Moses to the children of Israel, Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, he said, Say unto the people, here's an unchanging law of God. I will deal with them as I have heard them, according to the words that I've heard them speak. In other words, your words say what you believe. Confession is the law of faith. Now folks, if you look in the body of Christ today, there's not any real fight against faith. Nobody says faith's been done away with. Because if you say faith's been done away with, then there's no way to get saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. If faith's been done away with, nobody can get saved. Nobody's born again. So you don't hear anybody fighting against faith. What you hear them fighting against is confession. Oh, those name it and claim it people. What are they doing? They're attacking confession, which is the law of faith. Because if the devil can control your speech... He can determine what you have in your life. Amen. Folks, no matter who throws you in jail, no matter who does what, no matter who threatens you, you control your tongue. And there is no bondage, there is no circumstance, there is no adversity that can stop you from saying what God's Word says if you choose to. Your tongue belongs to you. I'm glad that what I get doesn't depend on what my wife says. She's pretty good, but she's still in training. Now, what I get depends on what I say, and what you get depends on what you say. Nobody else. So confession is the law of faith. Turn with me over to John chapter 8. I know I'm going through these real quickly. I don't really want to spend a lot of time on just what these laws are. I would expect that you would know these. But I want to speak to you about them for a different reason. John chapter 8. Do you know there's a law of discipleship? Let's start reading in verse 31. John verse, uh, chapter 8 verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Everybody say believed. What does that mean? That means they accepted he's the Messiah. That means they accepted he's sent from God. That means they accepted he's doing the signs and the wonders and the miracles by the hand of God. 
right? Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Please notice that Jesus considered there to be a difference between believing and being a disciple. Now here's where it gets quiet. Because you've got a lot of believers who claim to be disciples, and by Jesus' definition, they're lying through their teeth. Jesus said the key or the law to discipleship was continuing in the Word. John tells us in the letter that he wrote to the church, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4, I think it is, John said, He that says that he loves God or knows God and doesn't keep his commandments is lying. What's he saying? Same thing Jesus said. He learned it from Jesus. There's a big difference between a believer and a disciple. We've got a lot of believers. Believers are determined by accepting Jesus into your heart, making Jesus the Lord of your life, or accepting Him as your Savior. The Word of God, however, determines, and you continuing in the Word of God determines whether or not you're a real disciple. Because, folks, the law of discipleship is the law of knowing God. You can't know God apart from His Word. That's why the church is in, the American church is in such a mess. Because you've got people saying that God is one way, and then you've got another group of people saying, Christians, preachers, saying that God's another way. You've got another group saying God's another way. You've got another group saying you never know what God's going to be like. Well, he can't be all of those things. God is not schizophrenic. Yet if you took all the preachers... And all the doctrines that are said and, and, and taught about the things of God, you'd have to conclude that if all of these guys are right, if they're all speaking for God like they claim to be, then God is a lunatic. Well, he's not. There's only one way you can know God, and that's through his word. Jesus said to them that believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed? And you shall know the truth. Please notice that knowing the truth comes only by a knowledge of the word. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Please notice that you can only be free by continuing in his word. These verses are full of stuff for us to know. So what is it telling us? It's telling us the word of God, the knowledge of the word of God, is the law of discipleship. It's the law of knowing God. It's the law of freedom. And all of those are the same thing. Paul said the same thing writing to the church in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word transformed there literally means to be metamorphosized, just like a caterpillar crawls up into a, spins his own cocoon and comes out a butterfly. He goes in, chained to the laws of gravity, he comes out flying and overcoming the laws that held him bound earlier. Paul said that's the same result in the life of the believer, the one that continues in his word, by renewing his mind to the word. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind, so that you may know or prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word prove means determined by experience. It means to know from experience. You've got most of the church world weaving in and out of the plan of God for their life. They'll step over into it for a little bit and then they'll weave right out of it. How do they know what God's will is for them so they can stay in the will of God in everything that they do? There's only one way you can know that and that is by renewing your mind to the Word. That's why you've got some of the church saying it's God's will to heal and you've got other parts of the church saying God brings sickness on people to teach them something. 
They both can't be right. Which is right? There's only one way you're going to know, and that's by finding what the Word says. Well, in that particular area, Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. So Jesus must have been the healer, not the maker of the sick. Who went about doing good and healing. Who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That verse tells you, if you're going to continue in the Word, that verse tells you, and there are many others that confirm it, that the devil's the one that makes people sick and Jesus is the one that heals them. That verse in and of itself should be enough to solve the controversy about healing in the church. Why isn't it? Because you've got believers who will not continue in the Word. Does that mean they're going to hell, Pastor Mike? No, they're going to be sitting in heaven right by me. Well, not right by me. They'll be over in the healing class. Sure, they'll go to heaven. They're not passing up on heaven by wrong doctrine, by failing to renew their mind to the Word. They're just passing up on a little bit of heaven here on earth. Now, they will have to answer for those that they teach wrong. Bible says, be not many masters. James said in James chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we receive the greater condemnation. I have to answer to God for what I teach you. Just like every other pastor and every other preacher has to answer for what they teach. That's why I only stick to what I know. If I tell you something that's my opinion, I'll tell you this is my opinion. I'm not responsible for you taking my opinion. But if I tell you here's what the Word says, I'm in good shape. So continuing in the Word, or we could just say it this way, the Word of God is the law of discipleship. It's the law of knowing God. It's the law of freedom. One more. James chapter 2 talks about the royal law of love. The royal law of love. Now, James is saying, well, maybe we should read that. Let's look at a couple of these. James chapter 2. James is writing to the church, isn't he? You're scared to answer anything now, aren't you? <laughs> James chapter 2, verse 8, he said, If you fulfill the, loyal, the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So the royal law of the, of the, of the new covenant is love. That lines up with what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give unto you. Now, when did Jesus give that commandment for? Is he saying now until from the time he's talking to his disciples. So is he saying from the time that I go to the cross, between now and when I go to the cross, there's going to be a law that's going to supersede the law of Moses. And that's the law of love. Is that what he's saying? No, of course not. Jesus didn't fulfill the law of Moses until he died on the cross. When he said it is finished, he's saying the law is fulfilled. I've finished the sacrifice. I've finished the ritual. I've finished everything according to the law that was given to Moses. That's finished. He couldn't have been saying redemption was finished because he hadn't yet been to uh, the belly of the earth. Spent three days and nights in the earth to pay the price for sin. He hadn't yet been raised from the dead to be the mediator of a better covenant, so righteousness could not have been finished. The Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, on the morning that he was raised from the dead, he told Mary, don't touch me because I haven't yet been to the throne room of my father. The Bible tells us what he did when he got to the throne room of God in heaven. It says he offered his blood once and for all as an eternal redemption for us. 
So he couldn't have been saying on the cross that redemption was finished. He couldn't have been saying that it's all done now because it hadn't been finished. Well, then if, if redemption wasn't finished on the cross, what was finished on the cross? The law of Moses. He's saying, I've done everything that represented the sacrifice necessary to pay the price for sin. Now the law of Moses is finished. The only thing that was left for him was the actual penalty or the wrath of sin, the wrath of God for sin coming upon him in, in the, uh, the, the midst of the earth when he went to hell. The only thing that was left after that was him being raised in, uh, by the power of God, by the Holy Ghost, and offering his blood. So he can't be saying, in John chapter 13, the new law can't be a law for the old covenant. It can't be a law that just applies to when he went to the cross. No, he's talking about the new law or the new commandment of the new covenant. That's what James is telling us. The James is telling us that the royal law of the new covenant is the law of love. So Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I'm glad he put that last part in there, because that means we don't get to define love for ourselves. Jesus defined love. He said, love others like I loved you. I'm the example. Follow my example. Then he goes further in verse 35 and says, by this, love, by you walking in love, following my example of love, shall all men know that you're my disciples. Shall all men know you're my disciples. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I thought you said that the word was the law of discipleship. It is. John connects those two in the letters that he wrote to the church. He said, keeping the commandments of God, keeping the word of God is walking in love. You can't continue in the word without continuing in love. And so they are connected. They're separate, but there's a connection between the two. Now I want you to see something else about this. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I want you to see something else that love is. The law of. Let's start reading in verse um, 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. He said, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, with God, in other words, and walk in darkness, we're lying and we're not doing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So he's saying walking in the light is really important, right? Well, what is walking in the light? Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. He said, he that loveth his brother abides in the light. And walks in, and, uh, I skipped down. He that loveth his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Verse 11, but he that hates his brother is in darkness. So he can't be talking about a different light and darkness in chapter 2 than he's talking about in chapter 1, can he? So he's saying walking in the light, which causes us to have fellowship with God, is walking in love. Right? So what does that mean? That means love is the law of fellowship. Love is the law of fellowship. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. Here's the reason why we're talking about all of these things. Romans chapter 6. Notice in verse 14. Paul says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The word thee is not there. He's literally saying you're not under law, but under grace. 
Now, grace is defined as a lot of different things. Most people accept the definition of unmerited favor as the definition of, of grace. My definition of that's not what the word literally means. It's a secondary definition. The word literally means the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life, which really doesn't say too much to me. So for me, the grace of God literally means the finished work of Jesus. Everything relative to the grace of God is based on the finished work of Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus through faith. Everything that every place you find the word grace in some way or another is going to, the definition of the finished work of Jesus is going to be very appropriate for you to plug into that, that word grace. It means the finished work of Jesus. God's grace is extended to you because of the finished work of Jesus. One definition of the word grace means to stoop down. For someone of a higher class to stoop down like a king would stoop over and help up someone of a lower class. Well, why does God do that to us? Because of the finished work of Jesus. The very act of sending Jesus to the earth was God extending his hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But him giving his son isn't what causes us to be saved. It's just the finished work of Jesus that causes us to have access to salvation or redemption. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So, he says, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are under grace and not under law. But what law are we not under? We're certainly not under the law of Moses. But like I said earlier, I'm not tempted to go out and kill a sheep to make myself pleasing to God. That never has been an issue for me. I'm sure at one point in time in Sunday school I learned the Ten Commandments. But to be honest with you, I couldn't name the Ten Commandments right now. I could pick out a few of them that I know are on the list. But I have not memorized the Ten Commandments. Don't care to. Because if I'm walking in love, then I've fulfilled all the law. I'm keeping the Ten Commandments by walking in love. So what do I care if I can name them all? Do you see the point I'm trying to make? So he says, sin shall not have dominion over you. That is great news. Why? Why does sin not have dominion over us? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, because you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Period. So sin doesn't have dominion over you. But then when he says, for you're not under law but under grace. Well, does that mean because of the finished work of Jesus I'm not under the law of God? Does that mean I'm not under the law of righteousness? Does that mean I'm not under the law of, of faith? Does that mean confession doesn't matter to me anymore now because I'm under grace? Does that mean there's no law of love that creates fellowship with God? No, folks. He's saying you're not under man's law. Because you are under grace, because of the finished work of Jesus, you're not under what anybody tells you you must do or must not do to be pleasing to God. But thank God we are under the law of God. Because every one of these things that we talked about, righteousness, redemption, uh, uh, fellowship, faith, receiving from God, discipleship, every one of those things gives me something that brings me closer to knowing my Heavenly Father and knowing His goodness. So don't think that you're not under law. Law is not a dirty word. Law is the thing that brings you to the knowledge of God. Now I know where you're coming from. You're coming from the same place I was. And that is, and a lot of the, a lot of the people that are teaching this subject come from a place that may be similar to yours or even worse. 
And that is, the only thing that we ever knew was this sense of condemnation. You're unworthy. You're a hypocrite. You know you're not a good Christian. God's not going to do anything for you because of how terrible you've been and how you keep messing up and look at the terrible thoughts you think. And and I know where you're coming from. I've been there. And some 20-something years ago, I don't remember how long now, but 20-something years ago, the Lord told me in the midst of my biggest failure, where I felt the worst about something that I've ever felt in my life, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I passed it off. I thought, well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be. And I heard it again. Holy Ghost spoke again. Remember, Jesus said the Holy Ghost, when the Comforter has come, he'll bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I've said to you. Folks, the Holy Ghost will always bring the knowledge of the Word to you. And he said that to me three different times. Now, when God says something to you three times, he's trying to get a point across. I've had God say things to me, and I passed them off, didn't take take hold of them, and never said another word about them. And then the years later, I went back and I said, you know, I missed that. God was trying to show me something. But when God says something to you three times, he's really trying to get the point across. He said to me three times that I was the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I was in the middle of telling God how unworthy I was. I was in the middle of telling God how worthless I was. I was in the middle of telling God how I wasn't worthy even to be a Christian, much less a pastor. And three times the Holy Ghost said, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I stopped, and instead of saying what I had been saying, I thought, well, if God's saying it about me, it must be okay for me to say I didn't say it because I believed it. I didn't say it because I felt it. I said it for one and only one reason, and that was because the Holy Ghost had said it to me three times. So I said, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when I said that, a light came on on the inside of me. Now, when I say that, I don't mean in my spirit. There was not something that was dark on the inside. I mean a light came on with my understanding. I saw something. My spiritual eyes were opened, and I realized there is as much difference between the thing that I did And who I am as there is between daylight and dark. You need to understand, folks, you are not what you do. You are who Jesus made you. Paul says the same thing. He says, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Notice the next thing he says. You're right there in Romans chapter 6. Notice verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No, that's not what God's saying. God forbid. Know ye not, don't you know, that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? He's saying there's a difference between what you yield yourself to do and who you are. He's already told these people they're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying the simple fact is don't yield your body to do the wrong thing. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. Yet you've got some people out there now saying, you can't sin. Well, sure you can. Show me anybody that hasn't. Of course you can sin. Oh, but Jesus died for your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. Well, the potential for forgiveness for future sins is there. Yeah, sure. But just like Jesus died for the sins of the world, those sins or that forgiveness must be appropriated by the individual by receiving it. So if I sin, I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I just got off the path. But to receive forgiveness for that, I've got to say, Lord, I I missed it there. 
Now, folks, think about this, and, and, and I know a lot of people don't like to use this, this, uh, this understanding or this illustration because they say that it's not accurate, but it's the one that Jesus told us to use. Jesus said your relationship with Him is like a marriage relationship. You husbands ever had to, had to, make a, had to uh, ask your wife for an apology? or, or, or uh, I'm saying that wrong. It, it's, hard to, it's, it's so hard to come out of my mouth. I, I messed it up twice, didn't I? <laughs> Have you husbands ever had to ask your wife to forgive you? That's what I'm trying to say. I did that once. <laughs> what, what do we say? We all mess up with each other. Husbands mess up with the wives. Wives mess up with their husbands. Some of us are spiritually mature to apologize. So what do we do? If I mess up and I say, Beth, I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have said what I did. I, I shouldn't, have, shouldn't have done that. I, I, I apologize. What am I saying? Am I saying I'm worthless? That you, don't, you shouldn't have anything to do with me? Heck no. She's lucky to have me. I'm not saying I'm unworthy. I'm not saying I'm a worthless human being. I'm saying I messed up. Why is that so hard for people to get on a, Christian, on a spiritual level? But you got people that are just, no, 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 can't confess sin. Well, John said you could. Turn with me over to 1 John. 1 John 1. First John 1. He just, we, let's start again in verse 6. He said, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, that means we're not walking in love, then we're lying. And we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, walk in love. He defines walking in the light as walking in love toward one another. If we walk in love as He is in the light or as He is love, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you know what John is saying? He's saying anybody that says they're not going to miss it is lying. That's about as real as you can get, folks. If any of us say that we never miss it, we're lying. Everybody misses it. So what does John say? You dirty bunch of backslidden buzzards. No. He says it happens to all of us. How do you fix that? Verse 9. If we confess our sins. Folks, the word confess just means to acknowledge something. You can't repent of something if you don't acknowledge it. Some of the biggest fights that happened in marriage is where one or two of the, the individuals, sometimes it's both, won't admit that they've done the wrong thing. And if you don't admit you've done the wrong thing, you can't fix it. You just can't. Now, an admission that you've done the wrong thing, again, does not mean you're a terrible person. It means, okay, I acknowledge you shouldn't have done that. It may pain me to say so, but I acknowledge I shouldn't have done that. That's all confession of sin is. Now, some people have come from a standpoint or come from a position, a perspective, where confession of sin was something that dominated their lives because they were under the condemnation of the devil and they felt so terrible. Oh, you know, even, even some people have talked about thinking that they committed the unpardonable sin and were just tormented day after day after day by this thing. So they were constantly confessing. Oh, well, I've got to confess my sin so that maybe, maybe, just maybe, I can get back right with God. Well, that's not what this is talking about. I'm sorry for their experience, but you can't, you can't impose your experience on the Bible and change what it means. You just can't do that. 
I come from a position of condemnation too. And, and like I told you, I was only spiritually dead for about 12 days of my life. But I know what condemnation is. Dear Lord. I'm sure you do too. But my experience doesn't change the Bible. Any more than anybody else's does. So he says if we confess our sin, if we acknowledge our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now folks, righteousness and or unrighteousness is talked about in two different ways. It's talking about the condition of an individual or the nature of an individual. And it also talks about their actions. You have to look at the context to see which ones it's talking about. If this is saying that when we mess up, and everybody's going to mess up. If when we mess up, we become unrighteous in nature. That means, then that means you're going to have to get born again and again and again and again and again and again and again because you're going to keep messing up. It can't mean that. Jesus doesn't come and go. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, but what about if you sin? He's still there. Because you are in an eternal relationship. You have an eternal redemption through the blood of Jesus. That doesn't change because you mess up. Well, then righteousness or unrighteousness in this case cannot mean nature. Well, then what does it have to mean? It has to mean action. It means the same thing we just read over in Romans chapter 6. It means that all of us from time to time will yield our bodies, our members, as servants to sin. And then we come under the obedience of that wrongdoing. 1 John 1, 9 is the way out of that. If we confess our sins, then, we're, then He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, folks, I may develop this a little bit more next week. But have any of you seen the commercial? Uh, I don't even know whose it is. But it's the, uh, some kind of financial uh, advice company or whatever. And they'll show you how to get your retirement thing on, on track. And, and the commercial is as soon as they walk out of the office, then all of a sudden a green line appears on the, on the street. And the guy says, what's that? And the, the company representative says, well, that's the, that's the path to the, your retirement goals. Stay on the line. Well, they go walking down the line. The husband and wife go walking in there just so happy because this company has fixed all their problems, you know. So they just go walking down the line. All of a sudden, they, come to, they don't even get down the, to the end of the block. And they come to a car showroom. There's a sports car, and the guy stops. The guy hollers back, stay on the line. Stay on the line. Well, what's he doing? He's thinking, wow, that sports car looks good. Honey, there's just two of us now. That would fit me really well. What's he doing? He's being tempted to get off the line. Well, what if he goes into the showroom and buys a sports car? Does that mean he's a lousy individual? Well, his wife may tell him so, but no, it doesn't. It means he got off the line. And when, he's, when he realizes it, what's he going to do? He's going to sell the sports car, get back on the line. That's what acknowledging your sin, confessing your sin is all about. And that's all it means. For goodness sakes, it's not some, something to run from. It's something to run to. It's the way back on the line. And folks, the line that we walk is a red line because it's the blood of Jesus that paved the way for the royal law of love. Yeah, you're going to be tempted to step off the line. There are going to be times where you do step off the line. There are going to be other times where you step way off the line. You may step off the line and walk a good distance away. And then you're going to come to yourself and you're going to acknowledge, you know, I'm not in the right place. What do I need to do? I need to get back over here on the line. That's instant 
It may have taken you a way to walk back over there, but you can jump from there, from point A to back to point B and get back on the line. And that's all it means. Like I said, remember what Brother Hagin told us. Have the sense of an old cow. Eat the hay and leave the sticks. So then he goes in verse 10 and he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, John's saying, I know you've already messed up and you're going to mess up again. Now folks, the people that he's writing to are people that are claiming that they've got it all done. They've got it made. He's writing to people that are, that are taking a position where they claim to be so spiritual that they never miss it. And John says, you're lying. Everybody misses it. John was known as the apostle of love. Church history tells us that they tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work. They tried to kill the guy in a number of different ways. But the love of God was so great in his life. That's what he credited it to anyway. That's what he taught us about. The love of God was so strong in his life that it, they couldn't kill him. So they just finally had to exile him. We can't get rid of this guy, so we'll just send him away. Well, if John's telling us that we all miss it, and the love of God was so prevalent in his life so that they couldn't kill him, wouldn't that be a pretty good example to follow? Wouldn't he be uh, worthy of, of, uh, uh, of, of our understanding of this subject? Now, some people will say First John 1, chapter 1, was not written to the church. Now, here's where I've got a real problem with some of the teaching today. And I'm sorry, maybe it's just a personal, personal hang-up, but I am a real stickler for the Bible. That doesn't mean I know everything about it, but I refuse to let anybody take it from me. And so they say that 1 John 1 wasn't written to the church. It was written to unbelievers. It was written to Gnostics. Okay. Can I take a minute and talk about that? All right. We're going to have to read all of chapter 1. John starts off in verse 1 and says, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen. Please notice the times he says we. Which we have heard, which we have seen, with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's saying, I was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry here on the earth. There may be others of his company that were, that were eyewitnesses too, we don't know, but he considers himself as we. We don't know who the other we that makes up the we is, but we is certainly inclusive of him, right? He said, I was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. He said, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you the eternal life, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Still talking about Jesus. I saw him. I heard him. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. He's saying what we saw of Jesus, what we heard of Jesus, what we're writing unto you is necessary for you to understand so that you can be full of joy just like we are. Verse 5, And then this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, folks, I, I want you to understand that if now we are to understand that this letter, this first chapter, is written to the unsaved, please notice John has just identified himself with the unsaved. Is there any condition, any position, any time that you would ever do that as a believer? 
Why would you? And please remember that this is not just John talking. This is John being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the question is very simply this. Would the Holy Spirit inspire John to include himself with unbelievers? I sure can't find a reason for that. I'm convicted in my own heart. My own conscience tell me when I say something generally about we as Christians, talking about Christians that refuse to believe the word, I'll catch myself and say, well, I don't mean we, me. I mean Christians. I'm careful just about not including myself with religious people that deny a truth of the word. I cannot imagine under any circumstances why John, inspired of the Holy Ghost, would include himself with unbelievers. Can you? That would be contrary to everything that he's trying to declare unto them so that they would know more about Jesus. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, okay, which way is it? If the we of verse 6 is unbelievers that John is identifying himself with, then why now in verse 7 is he identifying with himself with those that walk in love as believers? Folks, there's only one answer here, and that is that he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. He goes further. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, verse 7, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, but see, Pastor Mike, again, back to verse 8. He's saying, talking about unbelievers. If unbelievers say that they haven't sinned, that there's no truth in that. Okay, let's accept that argument for a moment and consider what he's telling. If John is writing to the unbelievers, if John is writing to those who are not saved and saying that there is no person on the earth apart from Jesus that has no sin, well, that's a true statement, but is that what he's saying? Well, if it's what he's saying, what's the solution for those that are unsaved? Isn't salvation the only solution there is? How does salvation come? Romans chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 says, If we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So what is the key to salvation? The key to salvation, the law of redemption, is the finished work of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. But we obtain that through faith by making Jesus the Lord of our lives, by confessing Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Does anybody get saved by confessing their sin? If he's writing to the unsaved, does the Holy Ghost not know how to get people saved? Because if chapter 1 is about, the un- is about the unbeliever, if it's written to the unbeliever, then wouldn't the only solution for being an unbeliever or being someone that's unsaved to become saved? And is the method for salvation ever confessing your sins? How would a sinner remember all of his sins to be able to confess them? Now the answer for what he's talking about, not walking in the light or walking in darkness, saying that we have no sin and therefore stepping outside of love, he's saying the answer is confessing your sins and being forgiven from those sins. Folks, that's not how you get saved. So, either John is writing in chapter 1 to the unbeliever. Now this is, this is just, I, I'm sorry to make a joke about this, but think about how stupid this is. I mean, this is so absurd, it shouldn't even need to be discussed. 
This is so absurd. How many letters do you write where the top part is supposed to be torn off and given to the unbelievers? I do that all the time, don't you? I have stationery that has a perforated tab on it. So that the first part I write is just torn off and given to the unsaved. And then the rest of it is to the believers. Does anybody seriously believe that? That is so absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. It's laughable. Except that millions of people are believing that today. Okay. So if John wrote chapter 1 to the unbeliever, if he wrote it to the unsaved, then that means the Holy Ghost did not give the unsaved a solution for their lack of salvation. He did not give the spiritually dead an opportunity, the Bible way, to become a child of God. Because 1 John 1, nine is not it. 1 John 1, nine is not the way you get saved. So either the Holy Ghost inspired John to write to the unbeliever in chapter 1, and the Holy Ghost must not know how to get people saved. I don't know how many people want to stand on that side of the issue. Or 1 John chapter 1 is not written to the unbeliever. Which means 1 John 1, nine is written to the church on how to get back on the line. It can't, be, it can't be both ways, folks. It's got to be either or. It's got to be either or. So what's the answer? The answer is when you step off the line, you simply say, Oh, Father, I missed it. Forgive me. I missed it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a sin of my heart. It wasn't a sin of my spirit. I knew, wrong, I knew I was doing the wrong thing all along. And folks, when I talk about these things, I'm just making the point, not that it has to be this long, drawn-out thing. Turn with me over to uh, Luke chapter 15. Here's the story of the prodigal son. Can I show you something about this story? I'll guarantee you haven't seen it before. Because I'm just the smartest guy in the world. The reason I say I, I, I'm, I can guarantee that you haven't seen this before is because nobody ever emphasizes this part of the story. Nobody. Let's start in verse 11. He said, a certain man had two sons. Now, I want you to know this. Jesus is not saying here's a parable. He's saying here's a certain man that had this, these two sons. This was a real man, real family, real situation that occurred. You can't have a parable by saying a certain a parable is one thing is likened to something else. The kingdom of God is like a man planting a seed into the ground. This is not a parable. This really happened. And Jesus is telling about it. He said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent everything, spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him unto his, the fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself. Please notice in verse 17. And when he came to himself. Do you see that? And when he came to himself. Something happened in him before anything happened outside. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? He's saying, Even the slaves in my father's house have it better than I do. I will arise. Now he determines he's going to do something. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. 
and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he's got, his, he's got this thing planned out. Here's what I'll do. He's got his speech prepared. So now he acts on it. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned. Now he's, going to, he's rehearsed this speech. Now he gets to give it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, he interrupts him. He doesn't even let him finish. He just shuts him down, starts on his action toward the servants. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be married. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found and they began to be married. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come and the father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry. Folks, religious people always get angry. They live their lives based on anger. They feel like they've got to prove something. They feel like they've got to defend something. Heaven forbid that somebody should come back into fellowship. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. That sounds like a religious person, doesn't it? Look at me. Look at what I've done. And yet thou never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son, would even call him his brother. But as soon as this thy son was come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, and has killed for, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Can I paraphrase this for you? The father says to the oldest son, You idiot. Everything I have, everything that's left that your brother didn't take belongs to you. You can have fatted calves on the hour every hour if you want them. It's not my fault you haven't had your feast. Folks, that's what religion does. Religion won't partake of the things of God and they don't want you to have them either. Now here's the question. Everybody focuses on the Father. The Father's like God. He's waiting at the end of the road. He sees his son coming from afar off. He's waiting for his son to get there. And as soon as his son gets there, he doesn't even let him finish his speech. He wraps him up and says, Oh, son, I'm so glad to have you. Put the ring on his finger. Put the robe on him, signifying he's my son again. I'm so glad to have you. And I would submit to you that the Father is not a type of God. There may be things that we see that make us think very good about God. But remember what the son realized when he came to himself. He came to himself and said, I have sinned against God and against my father. The story tells us his relationship and his reunion with his father. When did he get right back with God? As soon as he acknowledged, I've done the wrong thing. It was instantaneous with God. The rest of it is just him coming back to his family. That's what 1 John 1 9 is. 1 John 1 9 is the part that's not spoken of here. Now realize he's Old Covenant. 1 John 1 9 is the New Covenant. But here's the parallel. Here's the type. Here's the example. 1 John 1 9 took place as soon as he says, What am I doing out here? This isn't right toward God and it's not right toward my Father. As soon as he acknowledged that, that's the confession of sin. He's forgiven. If it happened under the New Covenant context, he's forgiven instantly. Whereas 
where his heavenly father is concerned, now it's just a matter of going restoring his relationship with his father. So why is the confession of sin such a bad thing? Why would I not want to confess my sin when I miss it? I might as well give you the whole example before we go. Don't give me a, you're tired of listening look. I saw you sit here with Terry. <clears throat> now just give me another minute or two. <clears throat> Back to the commercial. <clears throat> Excuse me, where the financial company has the green line. Well, for the Christian life, it's the red line. And here's what it's like. We come away from making Jesus the Lord of our life, and there's a red line. And that red line has an instruction book. It's called the Bible. The Bible shows us what line to walk. Now, instead of starting off on just one little line, we enter into a great room. We're not like the guys coming out of the, the, the financial advisor's office. When you enter into the things of God, the kingdom of God, it's like a giant room. And this room is filled with all the blessings of God. You got forgiveness of sins over here. You got healing over here. You got financial well being over here. You got peace over here. You got freedom from depression and, and all these other things over here. And you got everybody looking around and examining all the things that belongs to them. Now, you got some, one group that goes over to the one table that's got forgiveness of sins and they stay there and they just sit down and they say, This is it. Praise God. Isn't this wonderful? But you got others who go from table to table and they look at all the things that God has provided for them. But folks, you're not supposed to stay in the room. Jesus said, Occupy till I come. So we leave the room knowing that these things are ours and then we will start walking. Now as you start walking, you start seeing other people that are believers and they're not on the line anymore. You see some people over here that are out dancing in the field. Now in life, off the line is a minefield. It's not about your retirement accounts. It's about a minefield. And there's a real devil out there that wants to destroy your life. And so the key to staying on the red line in the Christian life is to stay out of the minefield. Now, you're going to see people off the track. And you see the world, certainly the unsaved are out there, but you see people that there's a light on them. And you can tell the difference between the light and the dark. You can tell the people that are saved and not saved because the people that are saved have a light about them. They can be in the same darkness as the unsaved, but there's still a light about them. And you see people out there, and you wonder, what in the world are they doing out there? Well, you see one group out there. They're trudging. They're walking up the mountain. They're not on the line where it's peaceful. But they're climbing up the mountain. And they're trying to please God through their own works. you got people that are trying to please God by praying enough. you got people that are trying to please God by witnessing enough. you got people that are trying to please God by experiencing hard places. Because they think that's the way that God does things. You go a little bit further and you see some other people over here. And you see them over in the sick. You see them over in the sick ward. And they've got a light on them. And you wonder, what are they doing over there? And you've got another group of people that have lights around them that are encouraging them, saying, God's trying to teach you something. Just hang in there. And you think, why don't they come over on the line? Healing's over on the line. Then you go a little bit further, and you've got people that are just dying of thirst in the wilderness. And you wonder, why are they over there? There's provision over here. Why are they over here? But they're over there because of wrong thinking. They're over there because they don't know provision belongs to them. You go a little bit further, you get a group of people that are off the line too. And they're just dancing. They're just twirling around. They're just doing all kinds of things out there. You realize immediately, there's the charismatics. <laughs> they're off the line too, but they say, it's okay, we're speaking in tongues. 
And you keep going down the line, keep going a little bit further, keep going a little bit further, and everything you need is right here on the line. And sometimes that line gets really narrow. Sometimes it's not even two steps wide. It's one foot right in front of the other. And as you go, sometimes you lose your balance. You step off. You say, oh, got off the line. Got to get back over on it. It's not some big, long, out, drawn out, oh, God, forgive me, I missed the mark. No, it's like, oops. God knows you're made of flesh. The Holy Ghost knew so when he said to John, if you say you don't have sin, if you say you're not going to sin, you're a liar. We're all going to miss it. It's not some big, long, drawn out thing. It's like, oh, man, I missed that. Sometimes you're going to get distracted. You're going to be looking at something else off to the side. And you're going to step off the line. Not because you meant to. Just because you were looking at something else. Didn't keep your eyes on where your feet were going. So what do you do? See? Made a mistake. Sorry, Father. Get right back over here. I need to quit looking at that over there so I can stay on the line. And there are going to be other times where you may get distracted by something that you really want. Sometimes it's by somebody of the opposite sex. Sometimes it's because of some material thing. Sometimes it's just, it may be any number of things. And you'll start wandering off the line. You'll say, you know, I know I'm off the line, but, oh, that looks so good over there. You get a little bit further and further off the line. You realize, when you get there, you realize, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be after all. Man, I wish I was back over on the line. So what do you do? You say, Father, forgive me. Thank you that I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And because I am... Forgiveness is available. So, Father, I acknowledge my sin. Instantly, you jump back over on the line. You're right back where you were. And that line will take you straight into the blessings of God. That line will take you straight into the people that He wants you to minister to and influence. It'll take you straight into every perfect plan that God has for your life, all because you're on the line. Why would you not want 1 John 1 9 to get back on the line? See the point? Folks, you are under grace. You're under the finished work of Jesus. And you are free from the law of man. But you're not free from the law of God. Thank God we're not. That law of God is something we can run to. That law of God is something that protects us. That law of of God is something we want to maintain. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I'm going to miss it a lot. I'm going to miss it a lot. Okay, well, let me suggest something to you. Let me suggest you do what the Holy Ghost taught me to do. Let me suggest that as soon as you get back over on the line, then you start confessing that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and sin has no power over you. Make that your confession while you're walking the line. Then when you get off the line, you realize the devil has no part in this. You know, when the devil tries to bring condemnation to you, he's trying to condemn you for your actions. He won't talk to you about your nature. He wants to tell you where you missed it. Well, of course I missed it. The Bible says I'm going to miss it. What's that to you? Oh, but the devil will say, you're such a hypocrite. You're unworthy. You know God's not going to like you anymore for that. Listen, if he wants to talk about future, let's talk about future with the devil. It all comes down to knowing who you are, and the Word's the only thing that can show you that. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. Thank God 1 John 1 was written to the church because it shows us how to walk in light. It's a simple thing. It's just walking in love. Just simple thing. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the law of love. I want to get into some detail about the law of love. And I promise it will be the most liberating thing that you could ever imagine it to be. It's not some rule. It's not some hard thing. It's something like, you mean that's what it is? Yeah, that's what it is.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Father, we declare and confess. I'll tell you what, let's all stand together and we'll make a confession or two. Say this after me. Close your eyes and let your heart agree with what you're saying. According to God's word, because I am a child of God, I am righteous in God's sight. My failures, the times where I missed the mark, don't change the fact that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Unrighteous action doesn't change my righteous nature. I am righteous now. I will always be righteous. There will never be a moment in time where I am not righteous and therefore in God's favor. And when I do miss it, I thank you, Father, that I can fix it instantly without any sense of guilt or condemnation because of the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you're not mad at me. You'll never be mad at me because you're my Father. You're there to help me. You're there to guide me. You're there to provide for me. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, don't forget to prayer school today at 5 o'clock and healing schools at 6. Come back and be with us if you can. God bless you. Have a great day.